is episode 5-3 of Free as in Freedom. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. So, Karen, we have, uh, we have our usual announcements, uh, I suppose. Well, at least one of them. Our usual announcements? Well, we've been talking about, uh, I talked about it on this show and on Linux Outlaws, both, that we're trying to raise money to send Dan to a free software conference. That's right. I thought we had already announced that on this show, but perhaps We did. Mistaken. That's why it's a usual announcement. Oh, great. Yes. If you haven't already, please give to um, to our fund to send Dan Lynch to a conference as a thank you. He does incredible work. We're not at the total yet, uh, but uh, when when folks go to the website now, they'll see that there's a, a progress bar, so they know how far we can get. But the thing is, is you could keep giving more after the progress bar passes, and the funds will just benefit our organization, Karen, the Software Freedom Conservancy. Right. Um, so but there's also another way people could be supporting Conservancy too, right, Karen? Directly. <laughs> um, so uh, what Bradley is hinting at is that we have launched a membership program at uh, Conservancy, not called a membership program, but called the supporter program. And that's at cons- sfconservancy.org slash supporter. And you can go to that now. And if you go to our front page at sfconservancy.org, there's uh, various news items and blog posts that eventually link to that as well. And, uh, and you can uh, become, for $120, a supporter of Conservancy. And you get your name on the sponsors page. And uh, we have t-shirts too, right, Karen? You're doing something with t-shirts. Yeah, there's a picture. Actually, there's a, if you go to that page, there's a picture of me in the Conservancy t-shirt. It might not look exactly like that because that was a run that we um, we did uh, around OSCON, but we'll have to do a new run of t-shirts for this. And the t-shirts are going out in the beginning of next year. Um, some of our listeners know from the IRC channel that, that I'm I'm moving across the country personally. And, and despite the questions I got, I got a few questions by email asking if I was leaving Conservancy. Uh, I guess folks don't know that Conservancy has been a 100% telecommute organization since November 2013. So we we were just running month by month in a co-working facility anyway, which regular listeners do know about because I've complained (laughs) about it. Um, And so we we haven't rented there for more than a year. And so it doesn't really matter where I live. I think the only difference in my life it's going to make in regards to work is I'll get up slightly earlier than I already do. And when I I get up... I can get up earlier than you want. I'll probably have to get about 20 minutes to a half an hour earlier than I normally do. And then I will be uh, there when everybody's there. So normally I'm the first one there. Karen's the second one there. And Tony's the third. I'll probably show up with Tony now. <laughs> um, there was like a big a big period of time where I was the first and you were the second. I want to add. <laughs> well, I sometimes don't join. I don't immediately. If, I, if I'm working on a project, I don't immediately join. Everybody. Oh, I also sometimes don't immediately join the IRC uh, when I'm... See, now, now, now listeners, Karen and I will compete about who works harder. Um, so there'll be 15 <laughs> minutes of that if you want to speed through. <laughs> no, actually, we're not going to do 15 minutes of that. Don't speed through. I was kidding. And anyway, Bradley works harder than me. Bradley works harder than anyone I've ever met. I think I can safely say. I'm not saying Is I that work really harder. True? I work pretty hard, but I think you work harder than anyone I've ever, um, I've ever met on a consistent basis. Like, I know many of us do, like bursts of serious activity like serious work 
Um, but uh, you, as a, on a consistent basis, I think you work uh, harder than anyone I know. You know, I, 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 the funny thing is, is that I had such a horrible time uh, being motivated doing my master's thesis. And I'm actually, I'm going to say this um, because I, I, I think it's, it's good that people say these things. I actually, you know, I actually had trouble. I went to like the college counseling center when I was a university student to get help because I was having so much trouble with motivational problems and stuff. And so I, I kind of want to destigmatize that kind of thing because people should do that if they need help. And uh, I had such a horrible time getting my master's thesis done when I was a grad student. And I kind of got terrified that that might happen again. And so from that point on, I, I never stopped working. <laughs> I think the and way that, that was we like were, 22 <laughs> years ago or something. I think the way we work as students is really different as the way that you wound up working afterwards. Because I was really kind of a lazy student also. Um, but, uh, but then when I went to the law firm, it really kicked me into gear. And I find that while I worked in serious bursts in the law firm, so there were weeks when I was working 20 hour days quite consistently, um, I work much harder overall now. And it's in part because I care so much about what I'm working on. And then I guess also knowing that, you know, that, that our projects are relying on us and, you know, that there's this that the work needs to get done and that if we don't do it, then no one will. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and my, and it's certainly my motivation for software freedom uh, generally that I, I care about it as a cause. And that's certainly keeps me motivated. Although, I mean, at this point I have, I have so many, if I wasn't doing that, I mean, I have so many stacked um, projects that are of interest to me that just aren't high priority for software freedom. Like I have whole patch lists of patches for bash that I want to write patches for org mode stuff that I may never get to because it's just not a high enough priority in my life. I can't, I can't prioritize that over say conservancy's work or something like well, that. Well, you can only do so much, right? I mean, well, but my point is, is that even if I wasn't doing regular work for my job, the things that I would end up working on would be other free software stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. And I think that also, you know, when you're not working on conservancy work, you're doing other software freedom related stuff. I mean, you know, I mean like the, your work for the FSF, it's sort of akin to a lot of my work on GNOME and Outreach Program for Women. I think once you start working on things you care about, it's kind of hard to turn back. Yeah, I mean, certainly my, most of my work for FSF is um, is more procedural and mentorship. It's it's certainly not what I would... I, it's kind of... FSF's kind of a special case. I, I, I would do volunteer work for FSF that I... I probably wouldn't do as a volunteer for any other organization just because it it's uh, it's it's difficult work that's not compensated and, and takes a lot of time. And, and so I do that. That's probably such a special case, though. I don't think I would do that for any other organization. Well, I mean, it's part because you care so much about the FSF, and that's kind of my point. Yeah, that's correct. But uh, it's it's such a special case more than any other free, even free software org. Like, uh, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I don't think I would do that much volunteer work for like the GNOME Foundation like you would. I know you care about GNOME a lot more than I do. So, well, it's just it's, you know, I, I do volunteer work for the FSF, too. Um, but I'm, you know, it's, it's just focusing on the communities that you're involved with and the work that you're involved with and, you know, trying to make the most of your time. And so I, I think I can say that if donors, the donors should understand that you're, you're getting such a package deal when you donate oh to conservancy. You're getting great value. <laughs> you're, you're, you're donating to, to both Karen's and my salaries, as well as, as Tony Sebro and Deborah Gingrich's salary. And also you're making sure that, that we have a, a day job at conservancy that allows us to contribute other ways to, uh, to open source and free software. Yeah. Check out the list of, um, 
the, 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 not the list, the, uh, the explanation of why you should donate on the um, supporter page that Bradley gave the link for. And it will be in the show notes too, I think, but that's, I guess, up to Bradley. <laughs> yeah, it'll be there. Yeah. So, um, so I, I issued a, I, I posted a blog post today, um, which is, I guess before if you, I don't know how long it will be before this is where I try to do the time travel thing and I just fail. Uh, but anyway, I just published a blog post today where last week I you published a blog post last week. I published my blog post and in it, I said that, uh, that what's amazing about our supporter program right now is that if you look at the supporters that have agreed to be publicly acknowledged, you'll see this awesome list of people. I mean, some of the people are our regular listeners of this, um, of this podcast, which is awesome. And we thank you. And many of, many of the people overall are just, they're experts. They're people who are leaders in the field. Like I, I joked in my blog post that if we got those people together to speak, we would have a killer conference. And I think that's really, um, reassuring in a way and also just very like a real vote of confidence as far as I'm concerned, because if these people who are leaders and experts, um, feel like it's worthwhile to give to Conservancy, then we must be doing something right. And while it takes time to build a membership program, um, I think that people who are um, on the forefront of the field are, are, are the ones that we want to see there at the beginning. And in my blog post that I actually posted at the beginning of December, uh, one of my points, uh, my, my primary point, uh, because I am I like to be contrarian and uh, a pain to everyone, um, <laughs> I, it was really that the people I hope will understand the incredible importance of individual funded charities uh, like Conservancy has to be. Uh, we we work best when our donors are individual contributors. Right right now, and people can tell this from our form nine ninety by examining our public support test. Our public support test is is in the is is you know has has sort of oscillated from the forty to the fifty five percent range, which means that we're fully passing the public support test. But it's not it's not beautiful, right? There there are orgs out there that have a ninety five ninety nine percent public support rating, um, and while Ours is completely adequate for the IRS standards. Uh, it means that we're, we're getting a large amount of funding from very specific donors. Uh, that creates uh, two sorts of problems for a nonprofit. Uh, the first problem, uh, which I think we're immune from because it's me and Karen running the show, um, is that is that you know that they try to get influence with that, and and we we tell our donor Karen's very good when she tells our donors you don't you don't get anything for this money. Uh, you don't get to control us. You, you get to support the work that we're already doing that you like. Um, but yeah, no, uh, but, no one's immune. I gotta say, it's no like you have to be constantly vigilant about it because oh yeah, it, yeah exactly. It, you get influenced in subtle ways, and if you don't stay constantly critical about it, and you and I help do this for each other um, and for ourselves, you're you're great at that. Is to just sort of like stay focused on who are we getting donations from, and would that influence our actions? And if so, then we have to scrutinize those even harder. And the the second point, which I think is more important, is is a stability question. That the, the, the very large uh, individual donors or or corporate, it doesn't matter. But if 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 a lot of your revenue is coming from a small group of donors, uh, that means that that if those donors go away, the org suddenly has to cut half its budget and and do all sorts of of, of dangerous things uh, for the future of what the mission the org's trying to to. Uh, to push forward. So by having a large individual donor base, organizations are resilient uh, from lots of different problems that, that, that could happen. 
and could come up. Uh, and because your renewal rate is usually pretty good from year to year, you have this opportunity to, to sort of uh, believe in stability of your funding. And, uh, and, and some of the older orgs in our space already have that, which is, which is great. I, I think Conservancy, we're, 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 you know, there's orgs in our space founded in the, in the eighties and nineties. We were founded in 2006. So we're trying to build that. And, and those of you that, that care about the work that Karen and I are doing, we, we, we need your support. I, I, I hate to, both Karen and I hate asking for money. Everybody hates having to beg. Yeah. Um, the NPR people, they do it so, uh, and public television in the U.S., I, people outside the U.S. who listen to us won't know about this, but, um, the, the, we don't, uh, m- many countries like the BB, like, uh, the BBC in the United Kingdom, there, there's a, there's a structure to automatically fund, uh, state run, uh, state run programming, uh, so that, so that you can be assured there's going to be state run programming basically through a tax program. Uh, since that doesn't really exist anymore in the United States, uh, the public uh, television and public radio stations have to beg for money. Money, just like we're doing right now, um, in a telethon sort of way, and so, um, so, so it, they're very smooth at doing this because they've been doing it for 30, 40 years, and they have a, a nice defined structure. So, I apologize to the U.S. listeners who are starting to feel like this is a this is what an, an NPR radio <laughs> broadcast as opposed to to our podcast. Uh, and we will get back. I should use the NPR thing. We will get back to our content in just a few minutes. As soon as you give, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, they kind of give that impression, don't they? They're always like they're always like if, if you were to get like they, they almost convince you halfway through the segment that if you give now that, <laughs> that, that it'll stop <laughs> which is of course not true um uh, actually what i always hate there was one thing i hated about it which was um that during sesame street which is a children's show here in the u.s for those outside the u.s they used to bring out um ernie and tell kids to go get their parents which I thought uh, was a little seedy. I, I remember terrible. getting my mother as a kid to tell her and like to be like, hey, come in here. That Ernie said to come in to see what's on. Of course, it was just the pledge drive, um, which I, I always thought that went too far. So Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think that goes too far. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, for, for listeners outside the U.S., the way that Wikipedia handle, Wikimedia handles their fundraising drive on the top of every page is kind of the equivalent yeah, true. It comes That's from the a, same model. Hey, we didn't put it on top of all our pages. All our member projects did not put it on top of their pages. You know, if you go to Inkscape's website right now, the whole site is not uh, is not just fundraiser. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, although they have and, their Inkscape has their own fundraiser going on now, and if you're a supporter of Inkscape, you should consider donating to them for their their um, planning to do a hack fest. Yeah. And, and we should note that, that our projects uh, do give some of the revenue back. Uh, uh, the usual amount is 10%. Um, but that's that's enough to fund about half a staffer, basically, mm-hmm. uh, under U.S. salaries. So Yeah, we're sorry. kind of a fiscal sponsor plus. So we do a lot of, you know, we, we, we do a lot for our projects, which means it costs a lot to, you know, it takes a lot of time to do all of those things. Yeah. So and, and and fiscal we sponsors try to that, avoid passing that burden on to the projects. Yeah, and I mean, fiscal sponsors that do the type of, and the amount of work that we tend to do, uh, they, uh, they sometimes try. 30-40%. I mean, that's the classic university model where a university professor brings a grant in and 40% of it goes to the university for overhead. And so... Yeah, recently I had a project come in and say that they were astounded at how low our rate was. Yeah. And the ones that charge 5%, I mean, they're, they're good orgs. Like SPI is a great example of one that charges 5%, but they have a very, very thin uh, service plan. 
It's just a different model. Yeah, I always say that. I always say they have a thin sort of flavor. Okay. <laughs> so, so I think we should wrap up the, the fundraising segment of this particular show. Uh, again, there are two ways right. to give. You can give to FAF.us and that money will initially go to fund Dan and, and proceeds beyond that will be used uh, to support uh, Conservancy. And if you want to get your name listed and, and all that sort of thing, get the t-shirt, you can go to sfconservancy.org slash supporter and donate. We really appreciate it. So we do get back to things eventually. <laughs> yeah, uh, this in this case, uh, so we, we had an episode in uh, 2010, November 9th, 2010, episode 02. Um, and we didn't really finish the discussion, did we? No, we go off on a lot of tangents sometimes. And I can't promise that we'll close the loop on uh, any others. Who's going to say most of them, but uh, we go off on a lot of tangents and it sometimes distracts us from what we're talking about. And this happened in that episode, I think. Yeah. So, so, um, so you made a, you made a statement in the episode where, uh, and we never really explained it in any detail. You, you mentioned that plagiarism and copyright infringement were different. Well, so I think what I was talking about, and I think you listened to it more recently, Bradley, yep. I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I think we were talking about an article that had been, um, that someone had written an article and it had been, uh, I think it was about food of some sort. Like yeah, it was, a, it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a, some sort of food. It wasn't just purely a recipe. It was like an article about some food item and its recipe or something like that. And that, and, and somebody else, I think some kind of online magazine had taken the article and had reproduced it in full with a copyright notice. Is that right? Um, they, 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 yeah, they, they reproduced it. They credited her, but they, uh, they didn't, um, they, they didn't, uh, uh, it was a commercial publication. Right, they didn't and they compensate didn't, her and, and she had granted permission. Yeah. She published it, it online, be... but she didn't with the, basically no license notice at all. So, um, so, and they copied it in full on their own commercial publication and didn't tell her. And it was a really interesting situation because a lot of people were saying, well, it's in public domain because it's on... Well, that's, uh, because this that's what the, uh, the, the publication argued. <laughs> uh, right. And, and, and she, in her blog post, uh, commenting on it, said that, that, it, was, that it was plagiarism. And, and that's what led you to say, well, it's conflating plagiarism and copyright infringement. Um, right, because in this instance, they had actually attributed the article to her. Correct. Um, Him or her? I think it, it was, was a her. her. It was her. We had the same discussion uh, four years ago. <laughs> um, uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, so those who want to go back and revisit the beginning of this discussion should probably go back and listen to OXO two um, to to rekindle your memory. But uh, I we, wish I had done that. <laughs> well, it's fine because the the topic we want to talk about today we never really covered. There was one the one statement you made that they were different uh, plagiarism and copyright infringement, and we never went into any depth. Uh, we realized recently into what plagiarism is what relationship if any it has to free software licensing and all that sort of thing we, we've never talked about that on the oddcast uh, other than that one sentence was the only time we ever even mentioned it so uh you know in, in the interest of uh, of uh, in the uh, linux outlaws tradition now linux outlaws being being gone um what about we all the things they were linux keeping outlaws? an eye on this was something we were keeping an eye on and our eye is back on it um 
Yeah, and I think it actually it's interesting because uh, I have had issues of, or I've had the topic of plagiarism brought up a few times in the course of the last, I guess, five years. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting how the concept plays out differently in a, you know, you know, in the field where things are being shared. So where we're talking about um, materials that are released by somebody under a sharing license, whether it's a Creative Commons license, like a share alike license, or whether it's uh, work that's published under uh, the GPL, for example. Um, and these things play out a little bit differently in analysis than they would under a traditional copyright situation of an all rights reserved, which you would absolutely expect. In the way that most people think about plagiarism is in sort of the student copies a, um, you know, a, a piece of work from somebody else and submits it as their own. Um, and most people think of it in terms of where, you know, of the traditional situation where authors are keeping all of their rights and not deliberately sharing. But these things play out a little bit differently, complexly and very interestingly, when you've got, um, you know, when, you, when you've got sharing licenses involved. Well, and, and so because it's me and I, I do this sometimes on the podcast uh, when we have a term that's uh, used in legal circles uh, that comes from Latin. Uh, I'll point out that, that the word plagiarism comes from uh, plagiarius, um, which is a second declension noun. Um, I, uh, uh, um, I guess it's plagiarius in, uh, in, in classical pronunciation. I forget where to do with the first A in classic versus, uh, uh, versus, um, uh, versus uh, church pronunciation of Latin. Um, but uh, anyway, so uh, so I, I won't talk about that again because I always talk about that every time I mention Latin. <laughs> um, but it actually is the noun for um, a, a, a torturer or an oppressor or or someone who plunders, um, or oh, more commonly no more commonly it means kidnapper. So kidnapper is sort of the most common usage, which is probably how our modern usage comes from this this sense that the the work was kidnapped by someone. Um, but but it's a pretty it's a pretty uh, harsh noun in Latin. Yeah. I mean, the the act. Well, I, I I do what I normally do, which is I I looked up what Black's Law Dictionary says. I'm not actually I don't have my hard copy of Black's Law Dictionary, which is disappointing because there's something very satisfying about pulling that giant tome out of my bookshelf and looking something up, and I I love doing that. And whenever there's a chance on the podcast or anywhere else I, I do it because I love it and I might add that it has um, that my Black's Law Dictionary which is a ginormous book is uh, is actually pleather bound <laughs> and has my name engraved on the side <laughs> that's a bit much Karen well it was a gift when I graduated law school okay. so so what it so what is the Black's definition of plagiarism so the online version says that it's the act of appropriating the literary composition of another or parts or passages of his writings, or the ideas or languages of the same, and passing them off as the products of one's own mind. Yeah, that's um, so. So one of the interesting things. So I did some research on this as well, and I, I found a, a I found a, a 1992 um, journal article uh, for, from the California Law Journal, which was. Um, uh, which which seemed to be I, I looked online. It seemed to be the key article that people linked to with regard to the discuss has sort of the seminal discussion of copyright infringement versus plagiarism, um, and it points out. I'm curious. When, I wonder when Blacks added that as a definition because it points out there is no real legal definition of what plagiarism is. 
Um, hmm. And and the the author of the article uh, proposes that that there's there's really no definition, and then it says they're not going to give one in this article, but then one is given anyway, and the the <laughs> which was kind of funny. Uh, but the article ultimately defines plagiarism as plagiarism means intentionally taking the literary property of another without attribution and passing it off as one's own, having failed to add anything of value to the copied material and having reaped from its use an unearned benefit. Hmm. to say that there's no legal definition so just because it's defined in um in black's law doesn't mean that it's defined under statute or anything like that but there have been court cases around plagiarism because uh i would i would be misrepresenting myself to say that i did some research bradley sent me some links to things that he looked up (laughs) and some of which i i read and, uh, and, and, you know, so I'm, I'm now somewhat familiar with some of the case law around uh, plagiarism in different jurisdictions. So it exists sort of as a, as a, a legal, as a, you know, there's, there is a, like a legal relevance to the term. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's, I mean, it's a, a legalistic, I, I would call it a legalistic term, but I, I think from all the reading I did, it's pretty clearly not a legal concept. And, and many of the articles tend to say, well, there's never really been a case that's fundamentally about plagiarism. Whereas there's so many cases where that are talked specifically about copyright infringement. And, and what often happens is somebody who's uh, d- the typical mechanism for bringing a, a claim of plagiarism is through copyright infringement. And so the, the reason it's of interest to, to our listeners, I think, who are mostly free software types, is that there's, there's these copyright licenses that we use as part of free software. We have these, for example, copyright copyleft licenses like GPL or, or CC by SA. And then the question in your mind sort of automatically is, well, since you, if you comply with those licenses, you, you're not infringing copyright. That's sort of the point. I've talked about GPL enforcement, how that works and how that's actually copyright infringement and use the copyright infringement claim to get compliance with the GPL, et cetera. Um, so if that's the case, then what, does what if anything does plagiarism have to do with anything relating to free licenses that's sort of the question i'm immediately left with yeah it's a tough question to ask because presumably you know the the concepts of so i i the blanket statement i made in the previous uh in the previous episode or i i was it this show or it was the show I yeah free and freedom episode two. Oh, it was freezing free. Uh, so the episode I made, the comment I made then, um, I stand by in the context of what I was about to say, which is that what I was going to, what I would have said, I think, had I continued with that um, thought, would have been sort of that, that what's interesting is that, um, is that when, when the copyright notices are, are kept and the work is, is clearly identified as being a product of, of a particular um, copyright holder or author, then the, you know, then the issue of plagiarism kind of disappears because plagiarism is more connected to fraud, as you were sort of saying before. And sort of when you identify the work as... The, the key part of the, the Black's Law definition is... Um, oh, except I don't have it open anymore. Uh-huh. Is, uh, from memory, is, uh, is, is basically uh, uh, 
passing passing that work off as the product of your own mind. Right. So and, and the, and the it, as soon I as you found... identify the you know as soon as you identify that that work didn't come from you, you're sort of free and clear from. Uh, uh, yeah, I plagiarism. almost wonder if the blacks definition plagiarized uh, this uh, this article or the article plagiarized blacks. Um, but uh, I'm joking. Um, but uh, the, the, because that, that's actually what this article uh, this this law journal article says means intentionally taking literary property of another without attribution. Uh, and so so here's a couple of points the, the the all of the free software licenses require attribution anyway they have some sort of attribution requirement usually through the copyright notice that's the standard way we do attribution in free software we uh, all the free software licenses and free culture licenses require uh, uh, as far as I know I'm trying to think of one that th- I mean I guess there's there's pathological cases like the uh, do what the F you want license and the and CC zero, but but the, the licenses that have any kind of real licensing requirements to them, uh, generally, even the BSD, the two clause BSD and the ISC license require preservation of copyright notice, which is really I've actually argued if you, if you look at my work in the GNOME copyright assignment um, uh, position that I helped uh, write uh, in my role as, as the FSF representative on GNOME's advisory board, one of the points I made in that, which I, I co-authored with Michael Meeks uh, and, uh, and Vincent Unz, um, they, I, I make the point there, or Vincent, I guess it is, um, I make the point there that uh, the developers want to keep their copyrights because they want to see that attribution. And that attribution is important to them. And so by requiring preservations of the copyright notices, basically it, it throws any sense of plagiarism completely out the window. It just has, if you're maintaining the copyright notices everywhere, there's basically plagiarism just can't happen. Right. I'm sorry. I was uh, silent because I was looking there is something that I think um, some news that recently happened that is also relevant to this. Well, actually, which... uh, since so you mentioned news, you can keep looking for the specific news story you wanted. Uh, and I can mention news that I wanted to talk about. So I most recently, um, well, not most recently, but one of the one of the recent times in the past few years, I thought um, about the question of plagiarism was uh, was with Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, and as Stephen Colbert would say, my apologies to Doris Kearns Goodwin for this episode. Um, uh, it, but uh, it, it, she she was accused of of plagiarizing cer- certain books about, I believe, about JFK that she had incorporated material from. Um, and I, I felt her defense was pretty reasonable. Um, her basic defense w- was poor note taking that she had she had she had uh, by hand longhand. She, I mean, she's she's much older than us, you and I, Karen, and we're getting pretty old. Um, uh, You're getting old. I, I'm getting old at the same rate that you are, Karen. Um, although you fly, <laughs> actually, that. that's actually that's not true because you're more than I do, which technically means I'm getting older a little bit faster than you. Um, well, some might say, <laughs> uh, some might some some assert that you're as old as okay. you feel. Well, anyway, uh, but she's she's very much a long Dor- Doris Kearns Goodwin. My apologies to Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, she is a, she's a longhand type person, so she wrote a lot of she claims she wrote a lot of texts out in longhand, which then she thought were her own notes, and they turned out they were passages she had copied because she was interested in quoting them later. Um, you know, and so, and so mistakes happen, um, and so. Uh, and I think I think a career has bounced back. But the interesting thing is that is that uh, the, the free software licenses be, and free culture licenses, because they incorporate these requirements, 
the remedies for when mistakes happen are, are basically embedded into the license. So the entire licensing structure is based, in my view, especially as a GPL enforcement guy, designed to to realize there's going to be mistakes. I mean, I don't. I've always talked about how I don't treat violations of the GPL as like this big apocalyptic thing that I need to call people up immediately on the phone and scream at them or or anything like that. I always write my first letters with regard to an infringement claim regarding GPL is, hey, I think you made a mistake. Here the things you need to fix, please fix them promptly. And so I think that that's, uh, that, that, that our licenses make the problem go away uh, in a way that wouldn't happen to Doris Kearns Goodwin, right? Because if, if she had based that off of a, if the book she uh, allegedly plagiarized had been CC bias A or something, she would have had an attribution failure with regard to CC bias A. They would have had to have her correct that attribution failure and, uh, and she'd get her rights back immediately under CC bias A 4.0 as soon as she corrected the attribution error. So that the interesting thing about how the free software licenses work is they have this automated mechanism almost, not automated, but it's, it's, a, it's a defined mechanism to remedy things when errors happen. Yeah, and I think that the issue with the, the plagiarism is sort of like a, it, I don't know how to better say it, but it's sort of um, an emotional point. And I think that sometimes when people release their licenses under sharing licenses, they don't anticipate necessarily that their works are going to be used in certain ways. And this has been the problem um, with free software as well. Are you and making reference, Karen, to the emotional copyleft? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, I, you know what? The news item I was looking for is that Flickr had this news, um, uh, had a blog post last week. Ah, uh, yes, I know what you're talking about now, yeah. Flickr wall art. And, and basically what happened was that Flickr was allowing, um, introduced this, this feature where you could basically pay Flickr and, um, and get physical copies of, of works mm-hmm. um, to hang on your wall. Mm-hmm. And, and they were giving a percentage of the revenues to, um, to the photographers. But when they, but, but they, they were charging for the um, Creative Commons licensed images, but they were not providing um, revenues back to those authors. So not on, so basically for CC bias and CC by um, photographers. And I'm aware of this because in part I'm, uh, I have f- photos that I put on Flickr once upon a time under CC by, and it's thrilled me to see where those photos have gone. I've mm-hmm. loved it. They've, they've been used in all kinds of commercial endeavors, right. um, including, uh, you know, in a, in a travel book, one was sold in a gallery as part of a fundraiser. Um, I found a lot of works that have been used that I had, you didn't even know. Um, a lot of times, you know, like there's a clothing catalog that used one of my photos, but they have asked me for, uh, and those work, those, those particular works asked me for permission, um, for that use. Um, and to which I told them, you know, you don't have to ask me for permission. I'm psyched that you did. Cause now I know you're using it. Um, and in some instances they've sent me things as a thank you, but it's not been required by me. Uh, but I think a lot of artists were upset when they saw our photographers were upset when they saw that Flickr was taking in revenue from their photographs and not sharing that revenue with them when they were sharing with other artists who had um, who had claimed who had done all rights reserved and and unfortunately to me so what Flickr decided to do is that they've they've held off on this now and they've basically taken all of the CC licensed images off of their wall art um, availability in the Flickr marketplace which is to me kind of sad um, and I'm hoping that it just means that they say that they're going to work with Creative Commons and uh, reconsider yeah. and so I hope this means that this is a brief period but what's interesting to me about it is that a lot of the there's like a big discussion in the community about whether or not it was the right thing for Flickr to do and you know my answer of course is that it should be 
you know, that good community involvement means trying to um, to help support the community that is providing mm-hmm. underlying works from which you're deriving revenue from. But it's certainly not required. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think and, people... You know, I, I would be pleased as punch for my photo to wind up on somebody's wall, yeah, so regardless of how it got there. There's a couple of things I want to say about that. What, one is is that I, I think the distinction between whether you're required to do something by license and whether it's a good community practice is an important one. Uh, And Mm -hmm. there are times, uh, even in my work, where I'm only worried about compliance with the license and not good community practice. I'm thinking uh, as a good example, yeah, our work with Calithia, um, because they were effectively a fork of, of, a, of a party that was, was acting poorly with regard to license compliance, and, and, the, and the folks wanted to continue Calithia as a code base uh, under a free software license uh, under GPL. Um, we were only worried when we forked Calithia. We, ju- we, we, we knew we couldn't cooperate with the, the upstream, I'll just say the name of the company, Rogue Code, the upstream uh, author, uh, that they were not being cooperative with the community. So the only necessary thing to worry about was compliance with GPL. There was no community activity that needed to be done. There was no communication upstream uh, that had to be done because the, that, that had all been tried and failed. And so, and so, you know, so, so Roku could look at Cliffy and say, well, you didn't cooperate with us because all you did was comply with the license. That's the best you did. Uh, you should have done more. You should have been more active with the community. Um, well, on the other hand, that was tried for years and didn't work. So they had to do what they had to do. Um, in a case like the Creative Commons uh, licensing of the Flickr photos, that's different. It's a case where they made a, a an executive decision at Flickr, I guess Yahoo being the parent company, right? Yahoo's the parent company of Flickr. Am I correct? Yes. yes. So Yahoo made, or Yahoo, I'm sorry, has an exclamation point on it. Yahoo made the decision <laughs> that they were just going to sell these photos in compliance with the license. No question. If you do CC BY, you do CC BY SA. Somebody can resell that work, make money from it all they want, as long as they comply with the, the terms of the license. And then right alongside parallel to it, we're paying those who didn't choose such licensing. That's bad community practice because they didn't have a con- they didn't even attempt to have a conversation about it. And it's bad for the overall licensing of, of freedom because it makes it look like you can't make money with CC by SA and CC by um, because Flickr mm-hmm. made a decision that just didn't make much sense. It just basically was trying to. Yeah. And it, it incentive in that particular instance, it incentivized all, all rights reserved. Well, or it incentivized was, NC, really right? I mean, that's, actually, that's the bigger scare for me that, that's is it pushes people that's towards true. CC by NC, which, which really disturbs me because NC is just, I, I think it, it's such a, such a, um, a, a, a it reigns in free culture because it, it makes it impossible. It's the classic thing. Why Linus pit changed the Linux, uh, Linux's license to GPL. He did. He had a non-commercial license at first and he had to decide stupid things like, can I allow a user group to charge for a CD? Because technically that's commercial, you know? And, and it was just, it was just such an effort, uh, for to, to to do that, it was killing Linux basically to not have a GPL license on Linux. And, and Linus has written about this and has admitted that that the, the GPL saved Linux from being obscurity like Minix. Um, uh, I guess I guess I should apologize to Andrew Tannenbaum when saying that. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I think that, that that that's an example of where you have to delineate. And of course, none of it has to do with plagiarism because, as far as I know, Flickr was complying with the license and properly attributing. Mm-hmm. They just weren't. Uh, they just we're, we're doing a bad community practice. Uh, and so I do want. Right, well, but my point with that is that people got very emotional ah, about it. And, right, and so let's, and, let's and, take it back to that. Some people who, yeah, some people who had issued 
their work under under CC BY or CC BY SA had not really thought through what that had meant and were shocked when they saw that Flickr was commercializing all oh, their and, work. Oh, and man, I, I, that is so common. It's so it's so, so unfortunate common. that people don't understand what it means. E- even people you would expect to know often ha- have not had. And and in some sense, I, I I like to I like to bandy about the phrase hostile fork. Um, I've lived through a lot of hostile forks. I watched um, EGCS or Eggs uh, fork GCC. So I've seen, uh, and that was one of my first experiences as an FSF volunteer, was the eggs fork and watching a group of basically hostile developers who were angry at the FSF fork GCC and go off and do their own thing. Hostile forks are painful. I mean, they are painful from a community perspective. I think the eggs folks had some points. There was a negotiation. GCC is one project, again, has been for decades now, um, or I guess decade and a half now, um, because they negotiated. But the hostile fork was part of the negotiation. It's it's something you're allowed to do. You're allowed to fork, just comply with the license, and do what you want to do. And and that's something I think a lot of people haven't haven't dealt with. And so when we have commerce, people coming as Flickr uh, phot- photographers, they're totally new to the free culture licensing and, and certainly new to the free software licensing which for, on which it's based. So they don't have this experience of living through, hey, sometimes people do stuff that's compliant with licenses that you don't like. And you have to live with it. And people want to run to things like plagiarism as, as a defense for like, well, plagiarism is the answer because you you comply with my license, but you upset me, you, you emotionally hurt me. Um, it, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate truth that I think would happen, especially given that there's kind of no legal basis for plagiarism. Well, I mean, there could be a legal basis for plagiarism if it's like in a... Yeah, like, so let's, t- let's like, switch to talking about that. What, what, if there were, oh, I'll no, ask you saying, a question like, there If there were, no, actually, it's, it's good. Let's transition to that. Uh, so, so, so I just made the statement, well, there's no legal basis because we don't have a legal definition of plagiarism. But if you were to make a legal claim focused on plagiarism, Karen, what would it well, be? Well, so what I'm, what I'm sort of saying is that like, so for certain instances, like for example, universities have rules about what is acceptable and not acceptable. And they have like handbooks and guides in which they specify that plagiarism is unacceptable and they define what that is. And some of those universities have different definitions than others about plagiarism. So for example, some have provisions that say, um, you know, that, that the person must have intended to plagiarize in order for it to be plagiarism. Um, and others don't. And, and, and so those rules differ, but they basically come down to the documents that you're dealing with. So this is yep. what I was sort of trying to get at before. And I, again, got distracted when we talked about Black's Law Dictionary is that there are, you know, definitions in Black's that are legal terms that are terms of art or words that, you know, lawyers use. So words mm-hmm. that come up in contractual language, for example. Um, mm-hmm. So even though you might not be describing a cause of action on its own, they have legal meaning and there's a legal understanding of what those words might be. Yeah, and the interesting thing is that there is so much about intent. Uh, I mean, the definitions that I saw in the Law Journal articles, the one you found in Blacks, it, they center around this idea of intent. And this is kind of where I want to take the conversation. Oh, but I actually because I disagree with that. I don't think that the um, I don't think I don't think that the um, that the Black's Law Dictionary necessarily has an intent component in it mm-hmm. because it just says passing them off as the product of one's own mind. It doesn't say with the intention of 
passing them off as mm-hmm. products of one's own. Yeah, mind. I mean, and the one I found, I mean, but I, th- I think you're right that there's there's different definitions. I mean, the one I the one that was in the '92 uh, journal article, it specifically mentioned uh, an intentional uh, intentional aspect to it. Um, obviously, the Doris, uh, the, uh, the, the my apologies again to uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, um, <laughs> but uh, but but her her version uh, of the story is that it was not intentional, um, and there were no legal repercussions for her. In fact, as it turns out, uh, I mean that the, her Wikipedia entry claims that she resigned uh, from the uh, the News Hour because of the plagiarism claims, but uh, it, it's not it's not clear, right? I mean, I mean, it, I mean, certainly it creates scandal. I mean, and I think sometimes that's that that's what 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 kind of the threat of, of somebody somebody shouting plagiarism um, is is they're kind of they're kind of trying to scare the the person at first to say I mean either legitimately or not I mean sometimes legitimately to scare somebody and say you did something wrong and I'm trying to I, I'm gonna I'm gonna basically your good name will be lost if 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 I bring these accusations. Well, that's one of the reasons why I really like there being a, like an intent portion of the definition of plagiarism, even though there often isn't or may or may not be, is because the, because it's thrown around as such a character defamation um, thing or a way to, to basically sully somebody's name. And, and it's very effective. And in, and in times where people have actually copied work and passed it off as their own, truly, that, that really could, could be career-ending. Um, and is such a black mark on someone's name that it's you know it's such a that it makes the word plagiarism such a strong one to throw around because it basically implies that you have no integrity. Yeah, and this is this is one of the reasons I've I've often urged people. I mean, this relates to free software development. Um, in the old days, there there was the, the the reversion control systems were not as good. They required internet connection to commit, and so there was a lot of a lot of stuff that was added without the best possible attribution. I think if you go back into the into the nineties and look at look at code repositories, you find that there there's like thanks for the patches. In fact, I'm th- I'm thinking of a, a of an early. Um, an early release of, um, I think it was Bash, um, and um, they were getting patches in basically by by postal mail, more or less. People were mailing in um, media with patches, and so it was actually very difficult to figure out, like like keep track of, like okay, this patch that we now merged that came from this guy <laughs> and so forth, because there was no version control, there was no nothing. It was just like a, a a repository at the FSF that people were mailing patches into. So so the the the, the record keeping wasn't as good, and and this is why I think living in a world of of good version control, it's possible to to go back and look and see what everybody did if if you keep your repository good and and if you make your log message clear about what's happening about what's being added and where it came from. Um, I, I think that that's a, that's a huge help to our community to basically, you can always go to the revision control system if you've done it correctly. And there's no question you can chase things all the way through and, and generate a report if you want. I mean, the reports aren't great, but they're, they're okay. I guess if you mm-hmm. want to make a really detailed report, you have to put in an inordinate amount of time to make a real detailed report, but sort of a general sense can be gotten in a few minutes of, of where everything came from. Yeah. I mean, but shifting from the natural progression of talking about plagiarism and going to what makes appropriate attribution. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's really interesting because this is something that the free software world has struggled with for a long time. You'll see um, information, I guess I'll see published a, a guide on how on appropriate attribution at some point under the GPL. And Richard Fontana, I remember, wrote some really um, interesting commentary on file-by-file attribution um, and 
Oh, you're talking about the thing that I, I wrote a ton oh, of that, as well. So, okay. I, I knew you had also written. Yeah, I think, I think it was you, me, and Fontana wrote that, I think. I don't know because it's, it's not attributed, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because it's so, just copyright um, SFLC. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was work for hire. So, so I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, you know, uh, I mean, I, I yeah, don't really care. I mean, the thing is, it in works for hire, I suppose. Yeah, I know, and that's I mean, that's sort of really unfortunate when when you know you go to work for an employer and they they take all your copyrights away. And, and well, I mean, I hang on a second. It. I think in, the, in that instance, I'm not sure that that's the appropriate way of just of, of describing it. When you work for an organization and you're publishing work under that organization's name, it can be appropriate to have that you know be copyright the organization's name. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I've been burned so many times with, uh, I mean, I mean, losing access to my works. I mean, I mean, this happened to me as, as far back as Westinghouse. Well, if it's, um, a, if it's um, licensed I, appropriately. Actually, Dakota Imaging, my, my job at Dakota Imaging was the first time this, I had to learn this lesson over and over again, because I'm, I'm just uh, thick skulled, I guess, that when you do work for hire, you lose everything when you switch employers, like everything you had, they own, and it's not freely licensed. So well, you're if stuck. If it's freely licensed, then it's freely licensed. So that's, oh, oh and you're saying that that old SFLC article is not freely licensed. Um, I don't know. I, I wasn't going to go there. Oh, you brought no, I'm it sorry. up. I just, I just can't remember, honestly. Uh, I, yeah, it, point, it burns me anyway, a little bit. I'm sorry to, you know, yeah. it, I mean, I'm kind of burned by anyway, that. My but, point uh, is but, yeah. only to go back to the fact that it's very difficult to maintain file by file uh, copyright notices. And I think that when, um, when improvements are made and material is incorporated from various um, sources, it's hard to um, sometimes to make sure that attribution is, you know, is is effectively done in the best practices way across every place it's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, this is why. I mean, I, I and like I said, I sometimes have to learn my lessons multiple times. I, I've, I, I wrote that text about why file by file is a bad idea, but it's so it's the standard that that developers want to use. And I actually, just explain what it is for for listeners um, who don't want to have to go read proprietary documentation to figure it out. Um, uh, the, uh, the file by file basically means what, what what's typically done, which I think is not the best practice. Um, which is you put a copyright notice or attribution of who the author is at the top of of each um, file system file. So if you open a .c file or a .php file, a .pl file, a .py file, a .you know whatever, right? Whatever language you're writing in, and at the top of that file you put copyright this year so and so, right? And and then you put the license notice, um, and then you open another file. Somebody else starts another file and they put the notice. And, and I actually heard a, a very, I was very upset at, at Ben Colin Sussman and um, and Brian Fitzpatrick gave a talk once where they said, oh, oh, never update that when you're updating, that's a best practice. Don't update that. And, and I like, I gave them a really hard time about that because I was like, no, you should update it to be accurate. It needs to be accurate if it's there. And the fact of the matter is, is they're saying that's a bet. They were saying that's a best practice because that's what everybody does. Everybody just leaves it the way it was the, the day the first person created that file and the, all, they're all inaccurate because lots of people contributed. And then the, the revision control log is the only thing that has the, the, the true information in it. Um, and so if you do keep a file in the repository, which you really should, um, that says who holds copyright and what and so forth, you should pick one file, aggregate all the attribution information, all the copyright notices into one place, and just remember to update that one place every time there's a new copyright holder introduced, etc. Right, and if we're talking... Um, it's, sorry, go ahead. I'd say that was... My last sentence was going to be, that's really the best practice oh, there. And I was going to say, if we're talking about best practices for, um, for attribution, we should probably talk a little bit about... Um, CC by SA, since we started talking about this in terms of, you know, um, uh, free culture works as opposed to necessarily free yeah, software Yeah, well, I mean, maybe we should talk about both. I mean, which one do you want to, if we should talk about GPL and we should talk about CC by SA, we should talk about the two big copy lefts. Uh, so which one do you want to do first? 
Well, you, since you started talking about the GPL, I think we could keep going in that. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so the, the main, uh, the main, there's a couple of methods for attribution that are required by GPL. Um, uh, I mean, the, the, the obvious one is the verbatim copying, uh, version, which I I think that's pretty simplistic and straightforward. So I don't think I need to say too much about that. Basically, if you're making a verbatim copy, you have to leave it verbatim, (laughs) um, (laughs) because that's the copy type of copy that you're making. So any attribution notices that are there, you obviously would leave because if you start to remove those you're not making a verbatim copy anymore you're falling under the modified provisions and so under i'll just going based on gplv3 here uh, because it's the newer gpl um, under section 5 of gplv3 um, there's a bunch of different conditions in there. Um, you have to give under section 5A of GPLv3, you have to give prominent notice that you modified, uh, give some relevant date. Um, and generally, I should note that pretty much everybody considers uh, using a version control system and pointing to the version control system is completely compliant with 5A, um, that, that basically pretty much everybody's uh, concluded that's the case. Um, uh, and then section 5B says that you have to um, g- maintain the license notice. So that's a notice requirement, not really an attribution requirement per se, but a notice that it's under this license, which means you have certain permissions from the from the upstream uh, authors. So um, so those are the key. Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry. And then there's section 5D, uh, which is the appropriate legal notices. So if there's a like a, a about page or something like that that pops up, you do have to maintain that as um, as a uh, as a about page for with the copyright notices in it. Um, so that's like the kind of primary ways um, that you have to do the uh, attribution in V3 GPL. And notice I didn't talk much about the binary requirements because the, the neat thing about how GPL V3 works and any, but really any a software copyleft license, um, since it always requires providing the source code one way or another, because that's part of being a copyleft software license, uh, it, it's, it turns out that you can do all the attribution requirements in the source code itself. I mean, that's just standard. Everybody's thought that way and worked that way for years, and that's the way the licenses are designed, because that's sort of assumed. Um, I always point out, by the way, I did, just to, I was only going to talk about copyleft, but just to talk about the non-copyleft licenses for a second, under non-copyleft licenses, you'll notice you've got extra compliance requirements with, say, the two-clause BSD or three-clause BSD when you ship binary-only copies, because you do have to have a list of copyright holders somewhere, and the primary place the copyright holders are listed on a BSD-licensed work is usually the source code. Well, if you're not giving any source code, you've got to put those copyright notices like in the manual or something like that. And the most common non-copyleft violation that you see, which do exist, surprise, they do exist, um, is because people fail to, to display those copyright notices. I worked with the jQuery project uh, um, uh, years ago, um, which is uh, permissively MIT licensed. Um, they uh, had some, pla- they had lots of places where people were not uh, displaying their copyright notices as required by the, uh, the permissive non-copyleft MIT license. Yeah, and actually when we were at SFLC, there were quite a number of times, there were more than one time this happened where uh, we had to contact somebody and ask them to include the proper notices. And so do you want to talk a little bit about sort of the the attribution requirements in CC by SA? Yeah, so CC by SA, it's a little bit different because you don't, you often have works where you're not sharing the source code. Um, so it's a different. Yeah, and that kind of, always you know, throws me through a loop because, like, I, 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 I've always, I mean, I've been, I've been doing copyleft forever, and it was always you had to give the source code. So the idea of not having the source code with copyleft, I'm still struggling with that concept myself. 
Yeah, I mean, so it's, and I find, I often find that, you know, I do legal work with uh, questioncopyright.org as pro bono general counsel, and I sometimes find myself, because I'm so used to free software issues that sometimes I find myself in, like, you know, mid-flight in my thoughts, and I realize, wait a second, it's totally different in that there's no, um, there's no source code. <laughs> but there is source Sometimes code. I mean, I, is. this is totally uh, a side. I want to do a whole other, I'm just going to put the footnote, the footnote here, and we'll do another show. I want to do a whole show about the issue of CC by SA and no source code, because I think it's not, I'm, I'm actually starting to come to the conclusion it's not a true copyleft because of that, but just just put that in your oh, little... Oh, fascinating. Maybe your, we should try to do that the next show. Yeah, I I mean, guess, we'll try to do that in the know. future, but... All our listeners, put that in the back of your mind, and I'll let Karen continue. Oh, okay. Um, so with CC by SA, um, there, there's a you can look at Section Three A, which is um, about attribution, and um, and it sets out the list of things that you need to do there. Um, and it says that if you share uh, the license material, um, uh, including if you modify it, then um, you need to. Uh, Retain certain information, which includes the identity um, of the creators, and um, which is vague because it's not defined. <laughs> um, I don't think is it. Nope, Ooh, I, I looked. Yeah, okay. it's it's in that that whole section is where I'm sorry. I'll, I should let you finish. I, I have a bunch of weird criticisms of the section, but but go ahead. So you basically say you need to say um, you know identify the copyright notice the. Um, the notice that it refers to, um, to this, so basically the notice that refers to the CC by SA license, um, a notice, um, and basically all of those notices, and then also a link to the license material to the extent reasonably uh, practicable. Um, and you have to indicate if you modify the material, um, and uh, you need to uh, also indicate that, uh, that uh, you need to basically indicate that it's uh, licensed under the, um, the license and include the text, the, the a link, a text or a link to the license, um, and you can basically satisfy it in uh, in any reasonable manner, uh, mm -hmm. which is a really interesting provision. Um, so basically, links are basically um, sufficient, um, but if you're requested by um, the licensor, you must remove any of the. Um, information if they to the extent it's practical so if somebody says i actually don't want to be identified you mm -hmm. have to go and remove that information yeah, um, and, and then there are okay go ahead oh i'm sorry well you're not finished i apologize you can go ahead uh so then there are basically some additional um things about if you use it under the share alike provision and you share adaptive material um they're effectively including links to the works and satisfying them under any reasonable manner and um, not imposing any additional um, or different terms or conditions to or, or requirements. Basically, the copy left aspect. Mm -hmm. and so, so I, I you know, I, I've, I, I, I admit that. It was, so, one of the, the funny things about about my situation is that that I probably know more. I, I obviously know more about CC by SA than than ninety nine percent of the population of the Earth um, <laughs> because of the field I'm in. Um, but among you know, among free culture experts, uh, I'm I'm not a free culture expert. I'm a free software expert. So I'm basically behind everybody when I like when I talk to you about this um, about CC by SA. And, and and so I I've studied this section some. 
especially now that I'm, you know, I'm working on copyleft.org, which is a CC by SA 40 uh, licensed project. And, and so I'm, I'm getting used to compliance with this license because I, I've worked on GPL projects my whole life, not CC by SA one. So well, GPL compliance is second nature to me. CC by SA 40 is something I have to work at and think about. And I think that's true for anybody who, who is working with a license uh, that they aren't an expert in, which is, uh, I'm suddenly discovering is everybody, right? Because, because <laughs> I, I, I'm so, I'm such an expert in GPL that I'm like, oh, well, well, I, you know, uh, you know, it's 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 second nature to comply. So I'm starting to have some sympathy for the people who tell me that they they have to think hard sometimes about GPL. Um, yeah. I, I understand that. Anyway, that, that's a side point. So so I, I look at this section. It's actually it impresses me. Section three of, of C, section three A, I guess I mean of CC by SA because um, it, um, it it's clearly trying to strike a balance of two types of upstream works there's the type of upstream work that does not want to know what you did with the downstream in the sense that they, they do not want you to make a really horrible work downstream and, and not have, and, and not, they don't want their name on that. It kind of reminded of, of how, how Dune was directed by David Lynch, but it uses, it was such a bad movie that he uses that fake name. I forget what it is. It's a fake name they use in Hollywood when the director has disavowed their work. There's oh really? I fake, didn't know that. Yeah, uh, um, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll try to look it up before the end of the show and tell people. Otherwise, I'll put it in the show notes. But yeah, there's a fake name that, that direct. There's actually every class of union in Hollywood. I think um, I can check this later. But I, I think uh, most of the major unions they have a fake name you can use um, that gets credited for the work when you just want to disavow. <laughs> um, and that's what David Lynch did for Dune because the movie oh, wow. Dune is, is kind of a disaster. Uh, the original '84 one with uh, Kyle MacLachlan. Um, who you're a fan of, Karen? Um, and I kind of enjoy that movie, actually. Yeah. Well, it, well, that's because that's because you're really into David Lynch, but it's it's not David Lynch; it's this other person, right? So, so CC BiaSA is contemplating that. Well, what if the what if the upstream says, "Oh no, I don't want anybody to. I don't want my name associated with that thing." And there's people who are going to really want to be associated with the downstream works. They want the their name and lights, as I said in the Gnome uh, the Gnome uh, uh, copyright documents. Um, so, so it's trying to strike mm-hmm. the balance, which I think is where this like if the creator requests then you have to add more and and all that it's it's trying to like like basically lay out the future space for that kind of negotiation um but i think it fails in some sense because it has this weird stuff of retain the following right so so the the uh, sub uh, section three subsection a one a um has this list of things you must retain if they were already there and so it, it's it, a lot of times those things aren't in the original initial work, right? So if they're not in the initial work, there's nothing to retain. It's very similar to GPL. Like if they don't if they don't have a copyright notice, you don't have to retain a copyright notice. It's the same sort of thing here, but not it's not just for copyright notices. It's also for the hyperlink. It's for the reasonable manner stuff you were talking about. So um, I know, and it's actually quite interesting if you sort of to evaluate like whether a hyperlink is conveyed along with the licensed material. Like if you're handed a physical copy of the licensed material, it probably doesn't have yeah. The link in it of it where it appears on well copyleft.org does because on the the first page of all the pdf versions and so forth um it says you know that this this has always said this uh, since we started the project this can be found uh, at this url so it is in there on those cases so retaining in that case you'd have to retain that link but if you just yeah if you just have a document um even if you got it from the web if you have the document it doesn't the document itself doesn't contain the link the link is is metadata that, that doesn't necessarily come with it 
Well, I also want to add that we're working hard to make copyleft.org, and we've we've done some changes to it recently, but we're working really hard to make it like absolute best practices with respect yep. to CC by SA so that it is a living document, stays, um, and is a great example for people to use. So like going back to the plagiarism point, you know, copyleft.org since its inception has said on the on the main website that the um, you know that the material there is pulled from many different sources, and yep. um, and while FSF and uh, Conservancy are identified as sponsors, it's very clear that they're sponsors. Yep. And um, so showing that your work is not showing, so basically not passing the work off as one of your own mind or whatever that yep. language is, is very important, and it is from a conceptual perspective as well, just to sort of be very upfront about the fact that this work draws from works of other people. Because, you know, when you deal with a free culture work or an academic work or any other kind of work where that's been licensed under CC by SA, it could be confusing if you don't have um, a statement that says, actually, this is the work of the product of many authors. Yeah. And yeah. then um, showing, you know, so copyleft.org, for example, in the effort to be best practices and also the nature of, of how it is, has its commit logs online. So you can actually go and take a look and see where everything came from um, blow by blow. Yeah. And, uh, and since inception, yeah, have. since inception, I've always, um, I, I, uh, cause I, cause <laughs> you know, I, 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 bu I built that repository and everything. Um, I've always put the link to the commit logs from the, from the document. So, so that any copy of that document you get it has a, a it's front page tells you to go look at the commit yeah. logs yeah which i think is 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 pretty great and i think we've even improved it even more yeah. since then um but uh but i think that's a an important thing to do is to sort of just say what you're doing and you know and make it clear that there is a, you know where there's attribution and then um you know while there is this discussion of what is licensed material and is the the link you know, uh, whether you're whether you're required to the letter of CC by SA to include it, you know, to include a hyperlink is to me, you know, it's Bradley, I've heard you use the term. There was just recently a conversation that we had in um, in the faith channel. On yeah, we gave Freenet. a preview, a preview of this show, in fact, on the, F, uh, the faith channel Absolutely. on December 24th. A, that's real incentive to, uh, to, to hang on the IRC channel. The you channel. get previews of the shows. <laughs> But uh, but I, I you know I describe that in a phrase that I heard you use before, which is with respect to the DPL, which is barely compliant. Which is to say that even if it is you know meeting the requirements of the license, clearly what CC by SA is going for here is that you should you know where you can get those links, you should put them in a prom you know in a place where people can see them and follow you know get their way to the original work wherever possible. Yeah, I know. I, I you know and I and I use that phrase primarily to refer to those who who are who are kind of trying to game the system, who basically are looking for every line of the license and trying to interpret it and in, in, uh, interpret it against free software. Basically saying, how can I make this proprietary? Right, and and then they're they're going to try to make as much proprietary as they can. Um, I I think in a so on stuff like this. I mean, I mean the funny thing is is that when I talk about compliance, I'm usually talking about the source code provisions, of course, which don't exist in CC by SA anyway, which I lament as I've mentioned. Um, right. But um, but in the attribution questions, you know, I really think that. Um, th there's, there's, you can get kind of mean with the go above and beyond. I'm actually thinking, I, and people will note, I, you know, I occasionally rise to the defense of, of companies. Um, when Red Hat 
um, stop shipping their Git log or their kernel. I'll link to my blog post about this for people. They might not remember. It was a blip in the news, um, but of course it was about GPL compliance. So it, you know, it was something a big, big event for me, but blip for everybody else. Um, because of Oracle basically uh, taking the kernel from RHEL uh, and putting it into uh, unfakeable Linux or whatever it's called, um, they uh, the Red Hat was like, well, you know what? We're making it too easy for Oracle to just take our Git repository, rebuild it, and put it in their competing product. So the GPL doesn't actually require us to keep a Git log up. So when we ship our kernel, we're just going to ship a, a minimal change log that lists all our changes um, and gives them a, a you know just a, a tar.gz file of all the source. Uh, totally compliant with the GPL. Totally compliant. I totally get why why Red Hat did it. Why should they do zero charge work for Oracle? I mean, I, I don't see a reason um, and from a commercial perspective. Um, I wish the Git repository were still out there. I think it's better for developers. But to say that they're vi and people were like jumping to the parts of GPL that that say you have to mark your changes and saying, oh, Red Hat's violating the GPL. That was unfair. Um, they made a business decision. Um, it, 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 it wasn't great for the community. Unlike the Flickr situation you were describing before, it was fully informed. They knew that they, they had wanted to put the Git repository out there, but it made it it made trouble for them with their competitor. And so, I you know I, I it's hard for me to blame them for it. Like I like I'm annoyed that the Git repository is gone, but I'm more angry and annoyed at the people who claim they're violating GPL just because they they want the Git repository. I mean, uh, when somebody's going above me on and then can't anymore, I think it's kind of unfair when you look at somebody and say, oh, you should keep going. Above and beyond, uh, and and if it's costing you resources, it's costing. Yeah, you know, I mean, those are the kinds of questions that you have to ask uh, and be reasonable about it. Uh, so, so I mean, when I talk about barely compliant, I'm talking about people who put the effort in on the other side. They 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 sit there and try to get away with stuff, and they're putting enormous amounts of lawyer time and stuff like violators do uh, into getting away with violating. Um, so that's when I tend to use the phrase barely compliant, which really isn't a, a, a reasonable phrase because compliance is a binary decision, not a, not a, not a spectrum. Um, but uh, on the other hand, uh, I think there are cases like in that Red Hat situation where, you know, they, they, they were doing exuberantly well and doing a good thing for the community and they stopped, but that doesn't mean they stopped being compliant and it doesn't mean they're de facto a bad actor. Yeah, I don't disagree with that um, with that analysis. I mean, I was thinking of sort of the the violator or the the people not the violator, but the, I heard an industry lawyer once recommend that uh, that it would that it, that companies might want to consider burying the offer for source in various subdirectories so that it was uh, not very easy to find, but it was there, and it, it, you know, and that was so objectionable to me. Oh yeah, because I agree. And I, I'm not afraid yeah, to say who it was. I heard I, because, I've heard her say it too. It's Heather Meeker who advises her clients to do that. Yeah, I, you know, I recently talked to her about it, and she said that that was um, that I I heard what she had said out of context, and I'm not, you know, so I don't I didn't want to identify her because uh, you know uh, she's a, she's she makes her I living a, defending GPL violators. I don't think we should cut her any slack. Well, so that's not the point. The point is that that the um, that the you know that burying the offer for source frustrates the spirit of the GPL, and while it's technically compliant to do so. It's really a, an important practice um, to try to, you know, hide the fact that there's, um, you know, that there's GPL code in a in a product is is really tough. And I feel like uh, making sure that you include links to um, to works that you've used in a main body of the document is it's not exactly analogous because, um, you know, I. 
I, I hear what you're saying. One is an instance of of somebody who's thinking hard, trying to um, trying to find a way to be bare, you know, to to comply, but not necessarily in the spirit um, of a license. Um, and so they are slightly different practices. But I think that making as many efforts as you can to include links is is really reasonable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you, and and so I, I, I mean I I'm not against doing the best possible best possible job you can do to to collaborate. I think there's only two. I I think we should wrap this up. We're getting a little long on the show, but the only two yeah. points, if I, if you'll permit me to have the last word, I, the two points I'd want to make on that is I I think that um, it's complicated because of the way the license is written. So so I mean obviously CC by SA works. You're allowed to sit in a web browser as I've done, sit in a web browser, look at a CC by SA work cut and paste only portions of it, noting that it's CC by SA and where you got it from, and then just incorporate it. I've done that with works, uh, you know, that I, I, mm-hmm. my org mode file is filled with pastes of CC by SA works that I may later republish that I've noted are CC by SA and could incorporate and who, and, and, and have the, you know, have the details in the commit log. So, so at that point, it's been totally divorced from any of the information if the information isn't there. And then there's this, this really reasonable, I think, and almost nice, although I think it could be drafted better mechanism for uh, for the licensor to ask for better better or more I'm sorry more or less uh, credit as they wish yeah I love that that it's specifically written in the yeah. licenses that um, that licensors can should ask if they want better attribution or different attribution and they can ask if yeah. they don't want to be and, and, associated and, with a work and the fundamental criticism that I give to CC by SA here um, other than the one I've already given that we have to do a whole show on um, is that it hasn't lived in a world of hostile forks uh, I think that there there aren't lo- enough CC by SA works out there that have been hostily forked whereas in the GPL space we've lived through so many generations of different types of hostile forking the GPLv3 really represents a license that understands that sometimes forks are hostile so that there can be two communities who mean to do the best for their communities, but are in disagreement about issues unrelated to the license that then do hostile forks. And then the license might be used as a manipulation tactic between the two community groups. And I've seen that happen with GPL plenty of times where the GPL becomes the arguing point for two groups that were collaborating together that both want to release their stuff as free software, but are having a fight over now. And I think CC by SA is not designed to handle the hostile fork scenario such that it can get manipulated by kind of the most aggressive uh, side of the hostile fork argument. Hmm. And that's and that's unfortunate. And I think the only way you get a license better like that is, uh, and I, I hope that, I mean, I feel bad in some sense that I didn't participate more in the CC by SA 4.0 drafting <laughs> process. I was just way too busy with other work at the time. Um, and I think I, I, I've sort of made it on my action list that I, that, that I should try to uh, offer my expertise about what's happened in the software world to the free culture world more. I think I owe it to the free culture world to offer that. I think I haven't in the past, and, and that's that's on me. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's definitely clearly a lot of learning about uh, about the software world that re- is reflected in um, in CC by SA. Oh, and but I think the thing good. is, is Karen, but- is that the point I'm making is that I'm one of the few that really understands compliance. I mean, there's me and Harold Velta and a few others, but there's not many out there. So that's yeah, so, so and, and I, I feel I feel that I, I missed an obligation by not participating with that speci- domain specific knowledge well, to compliance um, in to go order. back to our the, the conversation that we started out this episode with yeah. is you can only do so much and um, you know I, I and the point I was just trying to make is that it's interesting where these worlds overlap but also where they don't maybe um, you know things actually do play out a little bit differently in a free culture world and you know and maybe this will come up in the additional show if we do it but uh, but it's worth checking out Nina Paley's writings because she went from, you know, well, she had her transformation towards being a, um, a, 
you know, someone who wanted to preserve all of her works to becoming a copyright abolitionist. But um, but in her learning process, she discovered that it was better for her to make source materials available because it made for high quality um, other works, which actually then benefited her. Yep. Okay, so um, I think so, I think to sum up, um, I, I don't think there's there's much to be said about this topic we started with. There there really isn't plagiarism uh, if you're complying with the licenses properly. They're designed. Yeah, if you're attributing, yeah. and I would encourage everybody to take a look at copyleft.org and uh, let us know how it can be improved in any way possible. Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Reason Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Reason Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Reason Freedom website, faith.us. That's faif.us. Once again, my apologies to Doris Kearns Goodwin. All the nudes are tasteful. Again, my apologies to Doris Kearns Goodwin. Not only did America again beat out Killing Kennedy, it also beat out the kinky psychosexual novel Fifty Shades of Grey. Due, I'm sure, to my book's graphic depictions of depraved sadomasochistic sex. Once again, my apologies to Doris Kearns Goodwin. <laughs> now, and um, wait, did you, have you been in West Africa recently? Yes. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna want you to take your temperature. Uh, right there, okay, just that. Just at some point before you leave, just uh, let's get that in your butt. Okay. <laughs> I've already... I do it to all my guests, not just you. Again, my apologies to Doris Kearns Goodwin. Look at that. Now, um, uh, okay. Yes, yes, it's freezing outside. Yes, dirty slush is everywhere. And yes, I had to push a frail woman in front of a salt truck to get a cab. Once again, my apologies to Doris Kearns Goodwin. As I said, this might be the last time that you're ever on the show. And I've apologized to you a lot on this show. <laughs> I've heard about it so many times. I mean, my picture is up there, and you mm -hmm. say something sexual, and then you say, <laughs> and then you say, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. You do say my apologies, apologies to, to Doris Kearns. Good one. Right. Apology accepted? Absolutely. I will. I'm going to miss it if you don't keep doing it. I'll tell you what. I'll just call you up and apologize in the middle of in the person. night. Oh. Yes. Um, since since you are.